And welcome back to When God Was Queer for episode two. We were made for this. I can't tell you how gratifying it's been to do this podcast and then hear from all of you. That there are listeners at all is wonderful, but to hear that you get it, that these stories are so important because we can see ourselves in them is truly fulfilling. We must remember going forward, because this has been the focus last week, this week, and next week, that that us as the third gender, the two-spirit, the non-binary individuals, the gender non-conforming folks, we have been known throughout history to make up the priesthoods of so many of the gods in the ancient world, and that resonates even today. We were known as the walker between the worlds. We were seen as marked by the gods, and we were seen as the perfect conduit for the voices of the gods to house their nature, to perform their sacred rites and rituals, to interpret the world around us in order to understand when the gods are speaking and what they are saying. That's why these stories are critical. So it's with that, I move forward and um, I just wanted to give you a heads up that uh, the way we cover the first four gods today is going to be looking at them as two pairs because they're essentially two sides of the same coin and we'll break that down in between the stories. Uh, also, I did want to make sure that you had a pretty big trigger warning slash content notice here and throughout the episode. Uh, there's going to be a lot of mentions of sexual assault and self-harm throughout this. Um, it's Greek mythology. All four of the gods come from Greek myths, so that's just kind of an inevitable part of it. Uh, but with that being said, you know, the stories really effectively illustrate the classical attitudes toward folks like us and where we fit in, and even more so the two ways that androgyny was treated in the world that these stories were written. And so with Greek myths, we're going to get started today with the story of Phanes. Last week, we began to speak about the ancient Greek mystery schools, and among the most famous and influential was the Orphic Mysteries, the canon from which we learn about Faunus. Faunus is the primordial androgynous progenitor of the gods in the Orphic cosmogony. The universe was said to have been created by Kronos and Ananke, the primordial gods of time and inevitability, respectively. They crafted the universe, which was shaped as a massive silver egg, out of which burst the firstborn god, Phanes, whose name translates to to bring light, like Greek, uh, like a Greek Lucifer. Phanes burst forth from the egg, or a void, or a watery abyss, or a void or a watery abyss inside of an egg, depending on translation and tradition, and was both the embodiment and the patron of procreation, generative forces, and creation accomplished through the blending or interaction of dualistic forces. Phanes' head was wreathed in fire, and they were crowned with a warrior's helmet complete with a plume. Wrapped around them was a great serpent, and they sported a set of large golden or bronze wings. They held in one hand a scepter, and in the other a clutch of flames. And they're almost always shown with the zodiac encircling them. Importantly, their physical makeup is depicted in many different ways, but they're always unmistakably androgynous. I mean, they're Greek gods, so of course they're naked, so we know this. In this tradition, Nyx is placed as either Faunus' wife or daughter, and just as she created night, they created day. It's said that Faunus was not just the progenitor of all of the gods, but was named their ruler. However, for reasons unknown, they passed the scepter to Nyx, which she went on to pass to her son Oranos, from whom it was taken by Kronos, and from whom it was taken by Zeus, where it ended up remaining. 
There are quite a few interesting attributions given to Faunus in various tellings of this procession. Uh, for example, Faunus is often aligned or syncretized with other deities like Dionysus, Eros, and Pan. And you'll, you'll know when that happens because you'll see the two names hyphenated. So, for example, when a scene as Faunus Eros, he, now a he, was born from the egg Nyx created after it was nurtured in the lap of Erebos, who is the personification of darkness and is usually Nyx's mate. He then mates with Chaos and births all flying creatures. Now, remember, Chaos is the like kind of ultimate primordial beginning of everything in Greek myth and is genderless uh, and is more a personification of uh, void or nothingness. And the interesting thing about the flying creatures part, which may seem a little off-putting, is actually it speaks to a common ancient Greek belief that flying creatures are much older than all others. And sometimes they were even seen as being older than many of the gods. When equated with Dionysus, Faunus Dionysus is called by many epithets, including primeval, two-natured, thrice-born, Bacchic lord, savage, ineffable, secretive, two-horned, and two-shaped. Furthermore, throughout the Orphic Mysteries, Faunus Dionysus is a dying and rising god, uh, which is probably derived from the fact that in Dionysus' own myth, uh, he is seen as thrice-born from three wombs, which we're actually going to go into in a future episode. Um, this was caused to believe that this deity was somehow transcendent and uh, was also the gateway to transcendence. Now, for the other side of the coin... Phanes was holy in their androgyny, sacred in their defiance of the gender binary, not just as the progenitor, but as the firstborn sovereign ruler of all the gods. But Agdestes, the wild laughing one, the bringer of chaos as they were known? Yeah, no, they were the living embodiment of the dangers that we were accused of posing in ancient Greek society. Even in a modern context, our mere existence challenges the whole undergirding of gender, which shapes every aspect of Western society. It threatens the false security of a clean-cut binary, which would see all of humanity be defined as option A or option B or else. And in this myth, we will see just how this sort of challenge is dealt with when it's posed by one of the gods. So, as far as where Agdestus came from, some say that Zeus unwittingly begot by the Earth itself a superhuman being which was at once man and woman and was called Agdestus. In other versions, there was a rock called Agdo on which the Great Mother slept and the rock leader split open and out of it was born Agdestus. And still others say that Zeus impregnated the Great Mother I'm just going to take a pit stop here. Um, the Great Mother is is interesting. It's a title that's ascribed to several of the major goddesses in the Greco-Roman traditions. Uh, but here, there's always three candidates that come up. Gaia, who is Mother Earth, which makes sense with what you've heard so far. Kybele, who's known as Magna Mater to the Romans, the Great Mother, uh, and who comes from Anatolia, which is where Agnesis comes from. And Echidna, who's the Mother of Monsters. I'll leave you to figure that one out. So, of course, we only have the stories handed down by the Greeks, not the Phrygians, the Anatolians, and the seemingly countless other peoples from Asia Minor who recognize this divine androgen. Now, for the myth. The gods feared Agdestus, the bringer of chaos, and their wild, laughing nature. Surely any entity who could understand the mysteries of men and of women could understand so much more than any of the gods and could not be trusted to remain free. One day the gods challenged them. Agdestus, you must choose. Are you man or woman? Are you god or goddess? Agdestus stared at the other gods and then simply laughed in their wild manner, scorning the gods and their fear and their contempt. You see, to many ancient cultures, one's androgyny, like we said, marked you out by the gods. So you were known, even from birth, as the priest, the shaman, the seer, the truth-teller, the oracle. But to the Greeks, you were dangerous because you knew too much, because you were too powerful, because you had unlocked the men's mysteries and the women's mysteries and so much more. 
So the gods, in their fear and their contempt, commanded Dionysus, who was a young wandering demigod at the time, to do their dirty work. Dionysus met Agdestus and put a sleeping draft in their drinking well. After the potion had put Agdestus to sleep, Dionysus castrated them, cutting off their outer genitalia. And just as the gods had suspected, as soon as Agdestus' blood splashed on Dionysus, he was struck with total madness and fled into the wilderness, leaving chaos in his wake. The blood also fell to the earth, and out of the blood which splashed on the earth sprouted an almond, in some tellings a pomegranate tree, fully grown. Sometime later, when Nana, daughter of the river god Singarius, was gathering the fruit of this tree, she ate some and became immediately pregnant with Addis, the sleeping god. Furious at this in only the way an instantly pregnant nymph can be, she abandoned the child, which I'm assuming she also had immediately, at the foot of the tree, where he was later found and nursed by a she-goat. In, by the way, that's not as uncommon as it sounds. She-goats are basically the nursemaids of ancient Greece. Now, in some versions, by the way, Addis is actually just born straight out of an almond, which I think is also, you know, interesting. Uh, but moving forward, Kybele, the Magna Mater, who we discussed, the great goddess of Asia Minor and later Greece and beyond, saw Addis in his beauty and desired to take him as her consort. So she sent Agdestus to pursue him for her. Now, Agdestus was always happy to oblige the great mother who had never forsaken them or their kind. But when they came upon Addis, they immediately became enamored themselves and seduced the young god, not knowing he was born out of the horrible mutilation and attempted assassination that they had survived. When he realized the truth, though, Addis fled in disgust, and many years later, when he was betrothed to a human woman, jealous Kybele sent Agdestus to destroy the wedding and punish Addis. And so Agdestus, unable to deny the great mother, arrived at the wedding and worked their dangerous, wild magic. The laughing feral one, the bringer of chaos, inflicted their madness on all who were gathered. The bride screamed in agony and cut off her own breasts, bleeding to death. And at the same time, Addis castrated himself in an attempt on his own life. However, Agdestus, clutching their child's bleeding body, pled with Kybele to save him. And Kybele listened. And so she restored him to a state of perpetual slumber, from which he would never wake, but from which he would never age nor die. You've probably never heard of Agdestus, and if you're a big fan of mythology, that may seem strange. Sometimes we stumble upon the most tantalizing fragments of myths and stories, and though they may be fleeting, they may also feel like the most lucid reflections of ourselves that we've ever seen, and then we're left in a really futile attempt to try to fill in the gaps. But like I said in episode zero, we are not going to settle for scraps. So here's a bit of a crash course in history as to just how widely this deity was recognized and worshipped in the ancient world. First of all, there's a lot of debate on Agdestus' existence in just at all, um, because a lot of ancient historians conflated Agdestus and Kybele as the same goddess. This happened a lot. Um, you would also see this happen, as we're going to discuss uh, in this and the next episode, uh, the, the deities Hermaphroditus and Aphroditos were also conflated, uh, but there's also ample evidence that they were separate entities. Uh, further complicating things, scholars have theorized that Agdestus is actually part of a continuum of androgynous Anatolian deities, including an ancient Phrygian deity whose name probably translates as Andistus, and another one called Adama, stretching all the way back to the ancient kingdom of Kizuatna in the second millennium BC. But there is some epigraphic evidence uh, that in many places, Agdestus was also considered a healing goddess of holy benevolent nature, like totally divorced from everything that we've said. But there's also a good chance that could be a, uh, a mistranslation from the type of Greek that was spoken. What we do know, though, 
is that there is tons of historical evidence available to us, which clearly defines Agnestis as a separate individual entity. Although primarily an Anatolian deity, the cult of Agnestis covered a good deal of territory, including Egypt, Greece, Rome, and beyond. And there are tons of inscriptions found at temples and sanctuaries that we can draw upon understanding that Agnestis, although they may have been syncretized with other deities, was their own individual deity. Uh, and there's also some interesting uh, implications that we can maybe draw from some of these inscriptions. Uh, one of my favorites is that there was usually a strict code of conduct to be observed in these temples. For example, there was a temple at Sardis uh, where the priests of Zeus were explicitly not permitted, permitted to take part in any of the mysteries or any of the festivities of Agnestis. And I don't know that there's a more sort of like face of the patriarchy in ancient Greece than like the priests of Zeus. So I don't know. I like to think about that. Um, but Faunus and Agnestis, as I'm sure you've seen here, make total sense in their comparison as two sides of the same coin. They're both primal, primordial, and deeply mystical. They're both capable of transformation, and they foster transformation in others. But where Faunus is the idealized, noble-minded, at least to the patriarchy, alchemical perfection of androgyny, Agnestis is the wild, feral, dangerous monstrosity Western culture has long seen us transfolk as. All of the evidence is in the telling. Where there's transcendence through evolution with Phanes, there is bloodshed and madness with Agnestis. And I think it should also, you know, be mentioned that there's no sex in the Phanes story, and there's lots of sex in the Agnestis story. So take that for what it's worth. On the next coin, we have Hermaphroditus and Hermathena. Again, cut from the same cloth, but undeniably different in their nature and expression. Hermaphroditus was the child of Hermes and Aphrodite. That's why the name is their names combined. Hermaphroditus was the Greek deity of unions, androgyny, marriage, sexuality, and fertility, depicted in art as, quote, a beautiful woman with a penis. For the ancient Greeks, this combination of the male and female essences within one divinity was closely associated with the moon and the mystical generative powers of procreation. Ergo, Hermaphroditus was regarded at, uh, as presiding over the entirety of animal and vegetable creation. Now, their origin story is told one of two ways. First, we have the original telling, which is much older and much simpler. There came a time when Aphrodite, as she was wont to do, was determined to bed every god on Olympus, with the exception of the virgin goddesses, and was immediately successful in the venture. Well, except for Hermes. You see, Hermes was often known for having favored boys, uh, but ever the problem solver, Aphroditus just snapped her fingers and became Aphroditos her male bearded warrior aspect and seduced him. It worked like a charm. Bada bing, bada boom. Hermaphroditus is born. The second telling by Ovid, which is later, uh, basically says that yes, the child born of this union uh, was named Hermaphroditus, but was a remarkably handsome boy. His beauty was so magnetic that the nymph Salmachus fell in love with him upon first sight and became obsessed with pursuing him. And then, like a completely reasonable demigoddess, she attacked him while he was bathing in a pool one day, attempting to rape him while crying out to the gods that they be bound together for eternity. Well, it seems at least one god was answering calls that day up top, but we still don't know who, and they granted her wish, fusing their bodies together and creating Hermaphroditus. Incidentally, the pool this occurred in was then either cursed or blessed, depending on the telling, and bathing in it would produce a similar outcome. I don't need to tell you that a woman pursuing a man is uncharacteristic in Greek myth. That would be a major understatement, let alone going to the lengths that she did. Indeed, if this was the true telling, she's the only female rapist in the entirety of Greek myth. And that's really saying something when you have an expansive catalog of stories in which rape is the catalyst more times than not. This, of course, means we should be skeptical of this later version and the fact that it leads to a demoted deity compared to the original. Importantly, we should also recognize that Hermaphroditus was also linked with prophecy, 
as those born intersex or otherwise with genitalia disallowing a neat binary birth assignment were seen as both monstrous and divine because their birth was an omen of good or a harbinger of doom. Their births were not the only event linked with presaging the future, as they were often seen in later syncretic Greek religion as specifically set out for uh, a religious purpose akin to an oracle, much in the tradition of the Mesopotamians. Also, uh, Hermaphroditus was not alone. Originally, the Erotes were the uh, retinue of winged handmaidens, which accompanied Aphrodite. And as a child of hers, Hermaphroditus had their own squad, uh, but these figures actually mirrored their own unique nature. And you can find images of them because for a good stretch, there was a, uh, um, a tradition of Apulian vase painting of the Hellenistic period where the Erotes were depicted with bodies like Hermaphroditus, with breasts and a penis. They wore feminine figure and attire. Their hair was worn in a top knot, tied with ribbon, and each was adorned with earrings, necklaces, bangles, and ankle bracelets. Interestingly, in the telling here, Faunus and Hermaphroditus, act Hermaphroditus actually have uh, some parallels. They are very much cut from the same cloth because Faunus is much more the macro scale of like the divine uh, progenitor and the cosmos and all the gods being born out of them. But Hermaphroditus is the micro scale of the union of marriage and the genitive powers of nature and wildlife. Uh, then we have Hermathena. <laughs> who is one of my favorites of all the androgynous gods because they're seen as simply a composite of the two gods, Hermes and Athena. This becomes all the more interesting when you consider the issue that uh, Aphrodite ran into with Hermes and why she exempted Athena from her godly checklist of lays. However, there couldn't be a more natural pairing to birth a new god who would synthesize their respective powers. Hermes presided over communication, language, and eloquence, and Athena was goddess of wisdom, strategy, and invention. It should be noted that there is another layer of complementary energies afoot. You see, Hermes is the god of thieves, con artists, uh, tricksters, wit, and cunning. Athena, she is by the book reserved and austere embracing the established order and teaching that that is the moral choice she was the patron of heroes but also the glad punisher of hubris each of these gods embodied metis the greek concept of clever intelligence but while Hermes embodied stealth, deception, and played a major role as a psychopomp, you know, the one that ferries uh, newly dead souls to the underworld, Athena embodied pragmatism, good judgment, and played a major role as a battle strategist. So, what's a god to do? Hermes is most often loving the boys, and Athena, as far as we know, is 100% a virgin goddess forever, or... She's super sapphic in, like, the strangest and most obsessive ways? Just wait until we cover her later on in our episode, Single White Female. While there's no myth in which they get together, let alone have a conversation about their child, Hermathena just pops up one day out of the clear blue sky, just like a great idea. Hermathena and Hermaphroditus are two sides of the same coin, and that coin is Hermes an immensely important god known for his own quicksilver nature. In the case of Hermathena, he is the mercurial intellect, which is as cunning as it is opportunistic. However, Hermaphroditus sees Hermes as a very different representative of masculinity and fatherhood than is usually on supply with the Greeks. Enough to father a child, but only through deception, and for once he's not the one doing the deceiving. It should also not be overlooked that one of the two has a deeply sexual mother and the other uh, has a deeply non-sexual mother, as far as we know. Next, I want to tell you about the Dine Bahane. This is the story of the people and the Dineta. It's the story of the Navajo and their homeland. You see, the Dine Bahane forms the basis of Navajo life. To be fair, it would take an hour episode on its own just to tell the whole thing. Uh, so for our purposes, we're going to focus on three key figures in the story and their contributions. Changing Woman, Turquoise Boy, and White Shell Girl. In the beginning, there was the Holy Wind and the Mists of Light, out of which the four holy people were born. Everything was spirit, and nothing was physical just yet, and it was divided into three worlds. 
The first, or the dark world, was small. It was just an island floating where the four seas met. There grew a great pine tree. There lived the two coyotes and the four rulers of the four seas. The East Ocean was ruled by a big water creature, the one who grabs things in the water. The South Ocean was ruled by Blue Heron. The West Ocean was ruled by Frog. And the North Ocean was ruled by Winter Thunder. And above each of these seas was a cloud. A black cloud, a white cloud, a blue cloud, and a yellow cloud. The black cloud contained the female spirit of life, and the white cloud contained the male spirit of dawn. The black cloud and the white cloud came together in the east, and the wind from the clouds was blowing. Out of this breath came first man, and with him came the white corn. Crystal, symbol of the mind, and clear seeing, was also with him. The blue cloud and yellow cloud came together in the west, and the wind from the clouds was blowing. Out of this breath came first woman, and with her came the yellow corn, and white shell, and turquoise, and yucca. First man made a fire with his crystal, the mind's first awakening. First woman made a fire with her turquoise. They saw each other's light from far off, and eventually came together. There also lived the twelve groups of air spirit people various bug and bat peoples, and it was these people with whom the troubles began. They became jealous of one another and began to quarrel. When they had had enough, the four rulers of the four oceans told the people that they had to leave this first world. So they did. Second or blue world. It was inhabited by many animals, all of which were blue. Bluebirds, blue hawks, blue jays, blue herons, and all the blue-furred beings. And among them lived the powerful swallow people, who welcomed the air spirit people, and there was harmony for 23 days. But that night, one of the air spirit people approached Chief Swallow's wife, wishing to sleep with her. And on the 24th day, after learning what had happened, Chief Swallow declared, We welcomed you here among us. We treated you as kin, yet this is how you return our kindness. Now you must leave this world. Anyhow, this is a bad land. There is not enough food for all of us. People are dying here every day from hunger. Even if we allowed you to stay, you could not live here very long. You see, while in the second world, the air spirit people still had not changed their ways, refusing to live in balance and harmony. The air spirit people wandered, looking for a way into the next world, when the wind called to them from the south. They followed him through a slit in the sky, and so first man crafted a wand out of precious materials like jet and laid it down as a bridge so the people could move to the south. The bluebird, who, like others, had joined the people and was, uh, was the first to make it to the third or yellow world. Here, the great female river crossed the land from north to south, and the great male river flowed from east to west. They crossed one another. There were six sacred mountains, white shell in the east, turquoise in the south, abalone shell in the west, big sheep in the north, and where the rivers met sat Brent banded rock and great spruce mountains. And on the sacred mountains lived the holy people. They were immortal and could travel on rainbows and the rays of the sun. There was Talking God, who was white, Water Sprinkler, who was blue, House God, who was yellow, and Black God, the God of Fire and Witchcraft. And beyond them to the east lived Turquoise Boy, and far to the west lived White Shell Girl. They were Nadlihi, neither male nor female. Now the holy people said to the first woman and first man, Live here, as husband and wife. First woman gave birth to twins. They were also Nadlehi. They were neither male nor female. After 20 days, she gave birth to a total of four more sets of twins, with five in total, half male and half female, except for the first pair. Almost at once, they were full grown. The holy people took each set of twins to their home on the East Mountain and taught them how to wear masks and pray, and then returned them to their parents. Eight winters passed, and the twins found mates among the Mirage people, and so many people came into being. It was during this time that Spider-Man and Spider-Woman, who lived near the crossing of the waters, taught the people how to weave, and they taught the people a charm. When a baby girl is born, one must find a spider's web and rub it on the baby's hands and arms so that she will be as strong and as wise a weaver as the spiders. Later, there was a great schism between the men and the women. 
One day, first man brought home a fine deer he had killed. First woman said, I thank my vagina for this deer. First man spun around, demanding to know what she meant. I mean that you bring me food because you wish to have sex with me, but we women could live happily without men. We are the ones who gather the food and till the fields. We have no need of men. First man grew angry and called all the men together. The women think they can live without us. Let's see if it's true. For four years, the men and the women lived apart. During this time, the food that the women harvested became less because they had no tools, while the men grew more and more and more food. But each group longed for the other. The women sought to satisfy themselves with bones and feathers and long stones. The men tried to relieve their longing with the fresh meat of animals. One man, Kiedidstisi, tried to satisfy himself using the liver of a deer. And it was at that moment Owl called out to him to stop. This is wrong, Owl said. No good can come of this separation. You must bring the men and the women together again. As it turns out, Owl was right. From the women who had sought to satisfy themselves with foreign objects, monsters were born out of this. The monsters would go on to terrorize the people for many generations. Kiedis Dizzy spoke to the other men. Finally, they all spoke to the first man. First man called across the river to first woman and asked, Do you still think you can live alone? I no longer believe I can, she responded. I am sorry I let the things you said make me so angry, first man said. And then the men sent a raft to the women's side of the river to bring the women across. The men and the women bathed and dried their bodies with cornmeal and remained apart until nightfall. Then they would resume their lives together. The next morning, animals began running past the village from the east. Deer ran by, and turkeys and antelopes and squirrels. For three days, animals ran past, fleeing from something. On the morning of the fourth day, the people sent locusts flying to the east to find out what was happening. The locusts returned and told them that a great wall of water was coming from the east, and a tide of water from the north and from the south. The people quickly ran to the top of White Shell Mountain. First man ran to each of the other sacred mountains, took dirt from each, and summoned the holy people, and returned to White Shell Mountain. Turquoise boy came bearing the great male reed, and first man planted it in the top of the mountain. All of the people began to blow on the reed, and it began to grow and grow until it reached the canopy of the sky. Woodpecker hollowed out a passage inside the reed, and the people and Turquoise Boy, White Shell Girl, and the four holy people all began to climb up until they came out in the fourth world. When the people arrived in the fourth or white world, it was all water and full of monsters. The sacred mountains were reshaped from soil taken from the original mountains in the second world. First man, first woman, and the holy people created the sun, the moon, the seasons, and the stars. First man and first woman summoned Black God, Water Sprinkler, House God, and Talking God. Together, they told Turquoise Boy and White Shell Girl that they were creating the sun and the moon. They asked Turquoise Boy if he would become the sun, and they asked White Shell Girl if she would become the moon. First man, first woman, Great Coyote, and the Holy People planned that there would be 12 months. With each month, the moon would pass from dark to light, and the sun would move to a different path in the sky. White Shell Girl was given a whistle made from the female reed, with twelve holes in it. Each time she completed her cycle, she would blow on the whistle, and a new month would begin. Black God used his fire to heat the turquoise on the buckskin until it became red hot. Then they asked Turquoise Boy to enter the glowing turquoise. If I do that, I must be paid with the lives of the people of the earth, all the human beings, the animals which have four legs, the birds and the insects of the air, the fishes, and all the people under the water. And then the white shell girl repeated the same thing. First woman, first man, great coyote, and the holy people all agreed. Then Turquoise Boy entered the glowing turquoise. First man used his crystal to heat the white shell, and white shell girl entered the white shell. Four circles were made around the inside of the hogan to complete the ceremony. In this way, Turquoise Boy became the sun, the one who rules the day, and White Shell Girl became the moon, the one who rules the night. 
The east wind asked to carry the newly formed sun to his land so that it could begin its journey there. Later in the first day, when the sun was finishing his first journey across the sky, one of the Nalehi twins, the ones that were not girls or boys, stopped breathing. Afraid, the people left her alone. In the morning, the coyote named first Angry, and the people went to find the twin, but Nadlehi was gone. One man looked down the reed into the third world, and there he saw her, sitting by the side of the river, combing her hair. He called to his friend, and he looked and also saw her. The people asked Coyote what to do. He took a black rock, and he threw it into the Blackwater Lake. He said, If the rock comes back up and floats, so will the spirit of the dead person return to the fourth world, and there will be no death. If the rock sinks, the spirit will stay in the world below, and there will be death. The rock sank, and the people knew then that the twin was dead. And first man remembered the agreement they had made with the sun. Four days later, the two witnesses who had looked down on the dead twin also died. The people learned that it was dangerous to look at the dead. The people were all mad at Coyote for this and gathered around to beat him. Coyote said they could beat him, but first he had something to say. I threw the rock in the water knowing that it would sink. The people darkly muttered about this to one another, the whole of them deciding that Coyote really did deserve a good beating after all. But quick-thinking Coyote finished his explanation. Without death, the world would soon be overpopulated. The elders would never die and would stay stuck in their sick and firm bodies. There would be no room for new children. We would run out of food and shelter with so many people to feed and care for. The gathered people were silent for a bit, with all of them contemplating Coyote's rationale, and they found him to be wise and intelligent. Now, the first human born into the fourth world came to be known as Changing Woman. The holy people told first man and first woman to take her to their home and raise her as their daughter. First woman and first man carried her to their hogan, and first man made a cradle board and tied her to it. Now she will be my daughter, he said. First woman took the baby and breathed on her four times. Now she will be my daughter, she said. At the end of the second day, the baby laughed for the first time, and Coyote came to them. As it became a tradition, Coyote said, I was told that my grandchild laughed for the first time. First woman took charcoal and gave it to the Coyote, saying, This is the only thing that lasts. He painted his nose with it and said, I shall know all things. I shall live long by it. Satisfied with the gift, he departed, and since then, persons always receive a gift when a baby laughs for the first time, and the first laugh ceremony is performed. She and the son had two children, twins in fact, who were called Monster Slayer and Born for Water. It was these two heroic twins who would rid the world of all its monsters while the holy people created the modern humans and taught them their ceremonies and rituals, which are still practiced today. She was called upon during a Navajo woman's entry into puberty and the Kina Alda, a four-day ritual performed at that time. She is named and celebrated during the Blessing Way, a Navajo prayer ceremony that is said to bring fortune and long life. As Changing Woman walks in the four directions from her house, she undergoes many changes. She comes out of her house an old woman with a white bead walking stick. She walks towards the east and returns middle-aged, no longer with a walking stick. To the south she walks, and she returns a young woman. She walks to the west and comes back a maiden. She goes north and returns a young girl. Often she and the sun are in harmony, but at times they argue, and he does not return with her home at the end of his journey. At those times the sky is stormy, and the world suffers. This story is very, very old and very complex. I highly recommend reading it in its entirety. But you can see there is space made for those who are neither male nor female, and they play such an important role, ending up being the sun and the moon. I'd actually like to go a little further back, or a lot further back in history. I'd like to go back to the birth of civilization to see what we can see. The ancient region of Mesopotamia, if you remember in middle school we called it the Fertile Crescent, and by extension Canaan, were home to a succession of prime civilizations and the foundation of the West. This included Sumer, Phoenicia, Akkadia, Babylonia, and Assyria. Each had its own creation myths, including the creation of humanity. 
and in each there were specific mentions of the creation of multiple genders, and the assignment of the social, political, and religious roles that they were to play. You see, to these ancient peoples, trans folks were simply a fact of life. Let me back that up with some evidence, including this piece of poetry. Sent, no destiny is determined. The most ingenious solution finds no favor. To run fast, to slip away, to calm, to pacify, are yours, Inanna. To dart aimlessly, to go too fast, to fall, to get up, to sustain a comrade, are yours, Inanna. The, to open high road and by road, safe lodging on the way, helping the worn out along, are yours, Inanna. To make footpath and trail go in the right direction, to make the going good, are yours, Inanna. To destroy, to create, to tear out, to establish, are yours, Inanna. To turn a man into a woman, and a woman into a man, are yours, Inanna. This is an excerpt from the poetic work Passionate Inanna by Enha Duana, who was the high priestess of the moon in the Sumerian city of Ur, and she wrote these words in the 23rd century BCE. This is very literally the earliest example we have in human history of someone signing their name to a work of literature. Now, to be clear, the fact that trans folks were a fact of life does not imply that we were not also reviled by some sections of society as well, especially as those societies became increasingly and more unshakably patriarchal and violent. Another example lies in the Sumerian myth, the creation of man, and its various tellings. The goddess Ninma, or Ninhursag, creates humanity, and not only creates multiple genders, but Enki, the lord of heaven, assigns each of them a role. In this telling, we see included the woman who cannot give birth, and the one who has no male organ or female organ. Enki makes these people the Naditu, or priest, and the Griseku, or servant to the king. In other tellings, like the Akkadian Atrahasis, it's actually Enki who asks her to make a third group of people, include barren women, third gender people, and an infant-stealing demon. Honestly, that's a big mood. In ancient Mesopotamia, worship of the goddess Inanna included soothing laments, which would be sung by trans-feminine or third gender priests known as Gala. According to the Babylonians, these priests were specifically created for this purpose by Enki. The third gender or androgynous priesthood was ubiquitous to the ancient Mesopotamian world. In the Babylonian era myth, the Asinu Kalum Kugaru Kalaturu priests were created by Ishtar as she possessed each of them in their ecstatic rites and oftentimes prompted physical castration. And that brings us to our final myth, the one I saved for last. I want you to sit back and relax, maybe close your eyes, uh, take a deep breath for my, again, my favorite myth, the one that I'm the most excited to tell today. It's the descent of Inanna and the birth of Asashunamir. Inanna, queen of heaven and earth, without whom the flowers would not grow, without whom the ice would never melt, the skies would never brighten, and the world would forever lay in slumber, awoke in her fullness to her beauty. From the great above, Inanna opened her ear to the great below, and the goddess abandoned heaven and earth to descend into the underworld. For there lived her sister Ereshkigal, queen of the underworld. Some say her cries came as she sat on her throne, perpetually giving birth to souls as they reincarnated, forever in the pains of labor. Others say that her cries came after her beloved husband, Gugulana, the bull of heaven, had tragically died, and Inanna was actually going to attend the funeral rites. What is known is that the other gods had all but forgotten Queen Ereshkigal and left her alone in the underworld, which was called Yerkala. Now Inanna would need to pass through the seven gates of Yerkala, demanding entry. But at each gate, the goddess was stripped of something. At the first gate, her shoes were taken. At the second gate, her jewelry was taken. At the third gate, her finery was taken. And so on. And at each gate, Inanna asked, What is this? And Nettie, the gatekeeper, told her, 
The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. Finally, Inanna passed through the seven gates and entered her sister's throne room, naked, humiliated, and bowed low. At the sight of Inanna, Ereshkigal rose from her throne. She looked at her. It was the look of death. She spoke to her. It was the speech of anger. She shouted at her. It was the shout of heavy guilt. And with a fearsome cry, she struck her sister, the Queen of Heaven, dead. Inanna was turned into a piece of rotting meat and hung from a hook on the wall, and Ereshkigal decreed, No god or goddess, no man or woman, may enter the underworld to rescue Inanna. However, before she had left the heavens, Inanna had instructed her servant, Ninshaber, in case she did not return at the expected time. She went to each of the gods and begged them for assistance, but each of the gods turned her away. They would not help Inanna, for it was known that no one may enter Erkala and return again. What did she expect? But finally, Ninshaber came to the house of Enki, lord of heaven and husband to Inanna. Enki heard Ninshaber's pleas and acted immediately. And so it was that Enki came to fashion a being of light. The Lord of Heaven gathered some starlight and the dirt from under his fingernail and crafted a being called Asashunamir, a dancing, shining spirit which was neither male nor female and yet both he and she. Asashunamir, who was so brilliant and beautiful, clothed in stars, shimmering in front of the throne upon which Enki sat. Asashunamir, bright and shining one, go now unto my beloved, for she is trapped within Irkala. Get her sister Ereshkigal to bring out the waters of life and sprinkle them upon my queen. But be warned, do not eat or drink anything you may be offered, or you will be trapped in the underworld. So it was that Asashunamir set out. To Nettie's amazement, they passed unscathed and unbothered through the seven gates of Irkala and entered the throne room of Queen Ereshkigal. And the spell of Great Ereshkigal could not possess this luminous being. For it was she who was moved by Asashunamir's beauty, stirred by their, their voice, by their dance. And so Ereshkigal demanded a great feast be held in their honor, and the best wine be brought out to the table. In her heart, she dreamed of taking the stunning being to her bed and keeping them with her forever in the land of the dead. But Asashunamir was careful. They secretly poured the wine upon the floor and did not eat the food prepared by the spirits of the dead. And when Ereshkigel had fallen into drunkenness, the neither man nor woman asked if they might taste the waters of life, which were of the most valuable and important of the queen's possessions. These waters were kept in the underworld behind a myriad of protections and, and safeguards for when they were sprinkled on a dead or dying one, they could bring them back to the fullness of life. Arashkigel called out to her servants, Bring the jug! I shall grant the wish of this charming being. And so the spirits of the dead brought out the earthen jug. Not long after, Arashkigel, who was in her cups, fell asleep, and Asashunamir quickly made their way to the lampless cell where Inanna's lifeless body lay. They sprinkled Inanna with the waters of life, and as the drops fell on her inert body, Inanna breathed easily as a child might breathe, and then awakened. Beautiful, and once more flowing with the energy of life, Inanna quickly made her way through the seven gates of Irkala, ascending to earth and causing the flowers to grow, restoring the trees to green. People rejoiced, returning to their planting, their weaving, their making of wine, their lovemaking, and a great feast was held in honor of the return of Inanna. But Asashunamir was not as fortunate. Ereshkigel awakened as they approached the final gate, and nothing could extinguish her fires of passion which had now turned to pure hatred. She let out a horrible scream which shook Irkala and the earth and the heavens. At her betrayal, she made such a sound that the earth split and the ocean rose and there was no one who could stop her. The food of the gutter shall be your food, great Ereshkigel cried, each word weaving itself into an eternal curse. 
The drink of the sewer shall be your drink. In the shadow shall you abide, despised and hated even by your own kind. And having pronounced her curse, she banished Asashunamir into utter darkness. Now, when Inanna learned of the terrible curse placed upon the luminous deity, she wept, and she mourned, and the earth itself felt her sorrow. She went out into the darkness and spoke softly so that no one might hear. Ereshkigal's power is great. No one dares defy my sister, not even I. But just as winter will soften and turn towards spring, I may soften the curse upon you. For many ages you will suffer. Those who are like you, my Asinu and Kalum, Kugaru and Kaluturu, you shall be strangers in your own homes. Your family will keep you as secrets in the shadows. They will cast you out and leave you with nothing. The drunken shall smite your faces, and the mighty shall imprison you. But if you will remember how you were born from the light of the stars, how brilliant and beautiful you are, and how it was you and only you who could save me from the final death and rid the earth of winter, I shall harbor you in your kind. You shall be my special children, and I shall make you my priests. I shall grant you the gift of prophecy, the wisdom of the earth and the moon. You shall banish illness from my children, just as you have stolen me from Ereshkigal and the land of no return. And when you adorn yourselves in my robes, I shall dance in your feet and sing in your throats, and no one shall be able to resist your enchantments. And when the earthen jug is brought forth from the seven gates, you shall be freed from the spell of Ereshkigal. Once more you shall be called Asashunamir, being clothed in light. Your kind shall be called Asashunamir, those whose faces are brilliant, those who have come to renew the light, the blessed ones of Inanna. It was this myth, this story specifically, which inspired this entire venture. The first time I heard it, I truly wept. Words cannot describe the feeling I had when I heard a myth detailing not only the creation of a god who looks like me, but that our shared nature was divine and necessary, that it was us and only us who could save the great goddess. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as the series develops. Episodes will definitely get longer based on the amount and length of the myths which fit the topic. Speaking of topics, next week I want to dive further into the concept of third gender or androgynous priests and holy people in the ancient world, so make sure you join us for episode 3, The Holy Me. Thank you again for tuning in. I hope these stories have uplifted you and that you were able to find some part of yourself in them. And to be fair, we're not exclusively looking at the legends and myths associated with third gender, androgynous, and non-binary folks in this podcast. But given that I'm non-binary and we are single-handedly the most erased and ignored group in our Alphabet Soup coalition, I want to make sure that we get our due time and space. And because we're often the uh, creators or initiators of life in these myths, our stories you know, kind of logically are going, getting to be told first. Um, but in the coming weeks, we'll explore every myth and legend, which reflects each of our experiences and helps us to learn more about ourselves and each other. So for now, be gay, do crime and wash your fucking hands because the gods are always watching. You nasty. (laughs) 